Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 25. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. How often do we sing about loneliness at church? I know, in uh, country music and blues and jazz, there's a lot of songs about loneliness. But how often do we sing about loneliness at church? It's not something that either traditional or contemporary hymnody has done a good job of, though in recent years, they're trying to work on it. In fact, I I went back through the old Trinity hymnal to look for sort of, were there any songs that talk about loneliness? There's one. His Eye is on the Sparrow. It's, It's a great song, but even that song asks, why should my heart be lonely when Jesus is my portion? it almost feels like it's rebuking us for being lonely. I shouldn't be feeling this way. Psalm 25 is a song for the lonely. Now, yes, it it promises that we will not always be alone. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. But it doesn't pretend that we will always experience that nearness of God. Sometimes we are lonely. And it's okay to say so. I'm, I'm not saying that loneliness is a good thing and, ah, we should all strive to be lonely. No. But it's also not a sin to be lonely. 
what should you do when you are feeling lonely? Well, we do have God's promise that it won't always be like that. But when we are lonely, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. We can go to God and say, I'm lonely and I'm waiting for you. This is where we get into trouble. We, we so often think that, oh, when I'm lonely, I need to focus on making friends. I need to focus on being a better friend. I need to focus on all the horizontal stuff. I'm lonely and afflicted. And so I lift up my soul to you, O oh Lord. A friend of mine pointed out to me this week that as I was going into my conversation on Tuesday, that what was missing in my thinking was I was thinking too horizontally. What I had missed was, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we realize that we've, our sin is first and foremost against God, that's when we start to see ourselves more clearly. And that's where, what is our problem in our loneliness? Well, our hearts were made for him. We were made for him. And yet, we're so busy running after all these things that we forget to lift up our souls to him. So when you're lonely, we have a song to sing. Our New Testament lesson comes from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says that we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have obtained access into the heavenly holy of holies. We have obtained access to that place where, where John stood beholding the glory of the Lord, hearing the holy, holy, holy. After all, Isaiah had only seen that on earth. Isaiah had been in the earthly sanctuary when he saw it. He saw the glory of the Lord come down to the temple. John is told, come up here. 
John comes up into the heavenly holy of holies and sees the real thing that Isaiah had only seen a picture of. And that's what Paul says. That's when he says we have obtained access. That's what he's talking about. We have obtained access into this grace in which we stand by faith. Because while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were helpless. We were weak. But Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. And that's what David longs for in Psalm 25. We've, we've seen over the last few weeks that, that Psalm 22 was the centerpiece of Psalms 20 to 24. Those five songs about the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. And now, so those five songs we just went through. And we're about to start a series of five songs in Psalms 26 to 30, which are five songs about the sanctuary. Psalm 30 even has the title, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple, in case you were wondering, did they really see this? Yeah, they did. Which means that Psalm 25 is right in the middle between these two sections of five songs. It's sort of a centerpiece that ties them together. So, the king in Psalms 20 to 24, the temple, the sanctuary in Psalms 26 to 30, the Messiah and the sanctuary. What is it that connects Messiah and temple, Messiah and sanctuary? Well, what language did we just hear in Psalm 25? Waiting on the Lord. Make me know your ways. Lead me in your truth. He instructs sinners in the way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Him he will instruct in the way. He makes known to them his covenant. This is, you could say, wisdom language. It is also very much Torah language. Uh, We oftentimes think of Torah simply as law. But It's instruction, direction. The whole five books of Moses are Torah, not just the the statutes, but the law, the Torah, the instruction, the direction of God. And there's a very much, if you think back to those who were in the evening service and heard the Leviticus series, in Leviticus, the whole point was it's it's when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies that he brings together God's people into the Holy of Holies? How can humanity be restored to fellowship, to friendship with God? How can the Lord's Messiah bring his people into the holy sanctuary? Through God's covenant, when the Lord's anointed walks in the ways of God, keeping his covenant and his testimonies, then God will redeem Israel and indeed the nations out of all his troubles. David gives us this song to sing both because it is his song, but then the way he sings it calls his people to sing it with him. And so just as our Lord Jesus sings this song, he obviously is the one who brings us into the heavenly holy of holies, but then he is the one who who encourages us to sing this song with him. And he gives us this song so that, so that we can see our loneliness in the light of what God is doing. 
Why am I lonely? When you're by yourself, you very rarely feel lonely. We usually feel loneliest in a crowd. Everyone else has a purpose. Everyone else is happy. Everyone else has a friend. And then there's me. That was a fair chunk of my high school and college years. And there are times in the last few months where that feeling has come back with a vengeance. Only for David, it's worse than that. Because in Psalm 25, I'm not lost in a crowd. This is the voice of David we're talking about. The voice of the king. Everyone knows who David is. And yet, he talks of those who are out to get him. The loneliness of Psalm 25 can be applied to every sort of loneliness. But it's focused on the loneliness of the king. The loneliness of David, who knows that his own sin has made a mess of things. And this is only... And he sees what's around him. But if you think about it, all loneliness has the same root. Why do we stand there alone in the crowd? We're afraid. I'm so screwed up. If they, if they really knew me, they, they wouldn't like me. If they knew everything I've said and done, if they knew everything that has happened to me, I would be publicly humiliated. And so we prefer to remain anonymous, alone, and afraid. Look around you for a minute. They're all just like you. They think I'm preaching this to them. I get it, because this takes time. We don't trust God all that easily, and we don't tend to trust each other either. We need the Psalms to serve as mirrors, a mirror for our souls. Athanasius said this well. The Psalms serve him who sings them as a mirror, wherein he sees himself and his own soul. And as he sees himself and his soul, he cannot help but render them in such a manner that their words go home with equal force to those who hear him sing and stir them also to a like reaction. Psalm 25 is such a song that calls us to see ourselves in the mirror. Psalm 25 is is an acrostic poem. Uh, Each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Uh, very much like Psalms 9 and 10 and Psalm 119, which is the most famous of the acrostic poems. And and the structure of Psalm 25 is is simple. There are three prayers in verses 1 through 7, verse 11, and verses 16 to 22. And, And then there are these two creedal statements, verses 8 to 10 and verses 12 to 15, which are both statements of confidence that God will be faithful to his covenant. You could summarize Psalm 25 very simply by saying, Lord, I really need you. And God is faithful to his promises. He does what he says. So, Lord, I really, really need you. That's, that's Psalm 25. 
the prayer in verses 1 through 7 highlight three key themes. The importance of shame, the importance of the way and the truth, and the importance of God's steadfast love. But why are we lonely? Because we're ashamed and we fear being shamed. When you're lonely, lift up your soul to the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. We heard last week that the one who shall ascend the hill of the Lord is the one who will not lift up his soul to what is false. David is saying, I want to be the one who will ascend the hill of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, we'll see the problem in Psalm 25 is that David has sinned. But as Psalms 20 to 24 have shown us, David understands that there's some connection between God's coming kingdom and David's coming son. And so with David, all Israel would sing this song recognizing that David's not the end of the story. David's going to die. But David understands something about where the story is going. And so we sing this song with Jesus. And he says, oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. We live in a, in a culture that is, I don't know, maybe rediscovering shame in a strange sort of way. People are constantly being shamed. Social media provides a forum for public shaming on a whole new scale. And yet, we also live in a culture that is allergic to shame. Have you ever, have you ever read a parenting book that says, shame is actually a good thing and you should, you should shame your children from time to time? When people in powerful positions use shaming, they're viciously attacked and they themselves are shamed. Have you ever noticed, though, that there's no way to avoid it? Because you cannot avoid shame. You cannot create a world in which no one is ever shamed. Because shame is actually the proper response to when things have gone very badly. When I have sinned grievously, I should be ashamed of myself. Shame is a proper thing, just like guilt. Guilt is a proper thing for those who have sinned. Shame is a proper thing for those who have done what is shameful. So that's where part of the, the, the challenge is how to use it properly as opposed to our culture's way of doing Thing. I mean, think, think of what happens in Antioch when, when Peter, ref, ref, who had been eating with the Gentiles, when he refused to eat with the Gentiles, what did Paul do? He publicly rebuked Peter, publicly humiliated Peter, publicly shamed him, and was right for doing it. Because when people do bad things, when they do things that seriously hurt others, they should be put to shame. I should be ashamed of myself for things that I have said and done. But notice what the psalmist wants to avoid. When he says, let me not be put to shame, he says, let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. This is part of the point of Psalm 25. That confession and repentance is 
the way to not be put to shame, to acknowledge it and say, it's just true. The theme of shame here has to do with your hope, your trust. If you put your hope in man, then you will be shamed. Your hope is foolish and insubstantial because others can't sustain that. But to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul with all of its bad, all of its good. I lift up my soul to God. And none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Now, notice the end of Psalm 25 in verses 20 and 21. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Psalm 25 begins and ends with the same theme. I, I want to be the sort of person who is not shamed because I fear the Lord. I wait for him. I take refuge in him. And that theme of waiting is fleshed out in more detail in verses 4 and 5 as we consider the importance of the way and the truth. If you would wait upon the Lord, then you need to know God's ways. There are two images intertwined in verses 4 and 5. The image of the path, the way, and the image of the truth. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. God's truth is is not just a matter of correct information. It, It obviously includes correct information. But correct information by itself is not the same as your ways, your paths, your truth. Because we once walked a very different path. Augustine says, let me shun errors and teach me, for of myself I know nothing but falsehood. Turned out of paradise by you and wandering in a far-off country, I cannot return by my own strength unless you come to meet me in my wandering For my return has been waiting on your mercy throughout the whole stretch of earthly time. After all, it's in John's gospel which speaks of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who, in whom the God of our salvation became flesh and dwelt among us. The teaching of God is, is not just a correction of intellectual errors. The teaching of God is a new way of, of walking and living in the truth, in the truth that is found in Jesus. And that's why the prayer of the lonely focuses not on who we are and what we have done, but on who God is and what God has promised. And that's the theme of the remembering of verses 6 and 7. This, the, the word remember is used over and over again. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your steadfast love. Remember not the sin of my youth. Remember not my transgressions. But according to your steadfast love, remember me. But remember me not for anything I've done. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. If we're going to operate on the basis of my performance, then I will be publicly humiliated, I will be put to shame, I will remain lonely and afraid. But the God of my salvation does not operate on the basis of our performance. 
He remembers his mercy. He remembers his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, his goodness. And remember, this, this is the Psalm of David, the voice of David speaking. And as we've seen over and over again, the voice of David in the Psalms is taken up in the voice of Jesus. Uh, you might wonder, but wait, Pastor, how can Jesus say, remember not the sins of my youth? Because Jesus never sinned. It's true. Jesus never sinned. But he could take these words on his lips. Because at the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. At the cross, Jesus took all our sin, our guilt, our shame upon himself. It's why in the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as the second Adam, the new Israel, the son of David. He takes all of Israel's history, all of humanity's history into himself and says, I am your story and I am giving you a new story and joining you to myself that you might share in my life. It's because he takes our sin upon himself. I mean, after all, how can we, how dare we take David's lips on our words on our lips? How can we say to God, Remember not the sin of my youth, but remember me according to your steadfast love. Who am I to say that to God? It's only because Jesus has taken your guilt and your shame to the cross. It's only because he buried it in the tomb and when he arose from the dead, he left it there. That's why in verses 8 to 10, the psalmist turns from a prayer to a creed and now declares to us what is true about God. Notice the way the creed moves from sinners, in verse 8, to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. After, as, as we're going through the catechism and, on sanctification, sanctification is a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Notice, that's a definitive work. That's a sort of, we are renewed. We oftentimes focus on the next line and more and more enabled to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The more and more part of sanctification is really important and we need to keep working on that. It's only possible because of the first line whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. It's only because God works a new gives us a new heart and a new a new life how do we get from being a sinner in verse 8 to one who keeps his covenant in verse 10 well notice the middle term he leads verse 9 he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way the way of the lord starts with humility the proud is full of himself the proud thinks that he knows everything he needs to know the humble will listen with open ears. I need to hear what God is saying or I perish. Remember in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist had asked God to teach me your ways. Now the psalmist confesses the only way to learn these paths is the path, the way of humility. Humility is hard. Humility means fearing God. Keeping the fear of God in view. Humility means that a man loves not his own will, nor takes pleasure in the satisfaction of his own desires, but instead imitates our Lord Jesus, 
I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Humility means becoming obedient to the point of death, as we'll see from Philippians 2 tonight. Humility means obedience, even at great personal cost. Humility means accepting the lower place, accepting the most menial tasks, because what matters most is following Jesus. And because the psalmist has learned humility, he returns in prayer in verse 11 and prays, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In a psalm that opens and closes with an emphasis on shame, at the center of the psalm is a focus on guilt. I do not want to be put to shame, therefore I will confess my guilt. But again, notice, it's not about me. It's for your name's sake, O Lord. And then he returns to his creed in verses 12 to 15. His, his, as he's confessing his sin, he's also confessing who God is. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Verse 12. Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. We're back to talking about the way, the path. Now, you can see in verses 8 to 10, the the sinners of verse 8 became those who keep covenant in verse 10 by the path of humility in verse 9. Now, in verses 12 to 14, the path of humility is described as the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. And in verse 13, we hear that his soul shall abide in well-being, in good things, and his offspring shall inherit the land. Remember, we started in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And now, with my soul lifted up to God, my soul shall abide in good things. And his seed will inherit the earth. Now, this is an echo of the promise to Abraham that the seed of Abraham would inherit the land And as we saw in Psalm 24, the the land, or is it the earth? Because when it says the earth belongs to the Lord, well, that's the same word you'd use for the land belongs to the Lord. But obviously, the land doesn't just mean the promised land. The land includes the whole earth. God's promise is not only for us, but also for our children. And indeed, it's not just for for a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but as Paul points out in Romans 4, the seed of Abraham would inherit the earth, the whole world, the cosmos. But well, verses 12 and 13 are third person singular. Notice the change in in person here. The man who fears the Lord, the singular one who abides in well-being, now in verse 14, David suddenly shifts to third person plural. And here's how you get to see that This is for you too. It's not just David talking. David's saying, all Israel, come join me in this song. Because the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. It's not just David fearing him. It's not just me fear. It's for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Now, uh, when you hear the word friendship, it can be easy to think in our modern terms. But friendship in the ancient world, and quite frankly, as late as the 19th century, was not just about sort of warm personal relationships. If, if you just think of friendship in terms of, hey, we're buddies now, the rest of the verse makes no sense. The Lord is good buddies with those who fear him and makes known to them his covenant. Okay, that doesn't make sense. Because that's not what friendship means here. Friendship is an intimate relationship. But actually, the word used 
to translate the translated friendship has to do with secret counsels, inner inner this is sort of this is talking about who's in God's inner circle. The one who is called the friend here is one who knows your deepest secrets. Abraham was called the friend of God. Why? Because in Genesis 18, God invited Abraham into his secret council in order to discuss how to handle Sodom and Gomorrah. God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So if if you think back, you know, at the flood, God simply told Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth to build the ark. All right, get going. With Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, hey, Abraham, I'm... I want to talk with you about this because I've, I've heard the outcry against Sodom and I'm, I'm planning to destroy it. What do you think I should do? That's, I mean, that's a paraphrase, but he invites Abraham into the conversation and Abraham says, well, if there are 50 righteous, would you still destroy it? God says, oh no, no. How about 45? No. 40? No. 30? No. 20? No. 10? No. And he stops there. God and Abraham are having a discussion about what God should do. Abraham is called the friend of God. He welcomes Abraham's feedback on his plans. And Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The friendship of God is to invite his people into his counsel and to tell us what he is doing in history and to invite our participation in that, as strange as that may sound. But that's what the friendship of God is. When you fear God and put your trust in him, God commits himself to be there for you as a friend. When you are lonely, when you feel as though no one else understands, remember that Jesus calls you friend and he opens the door to your participation with him. And so the psalmist concludes his creed by confessing in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Now, that may sound strange to us because our eyes must be ever toward the Lord. Now, why wouldn't you watch where you're going? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to just keep your eye on the path? If you're watching the path, why are you saying my eyes are on the Lord? I'm not watching where I'm going. If I saw the net in the first place, maybe my feet wouldn't have gotten tangled up. That's not the way the psalmist says it. As we see throughout this psalm, there are many snares and dangers. And while I may be able to avoid some by keeping a sharp eye peeled, it's not going to work. And so I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus because he will pluck my feet out of the net. Notice that there is no promise that you will never get tangled in the net. After all, if uh, here, here, here's the one you, you, you can't watch out for. You can watch out for all the other ones, but what about the ones that you laid for others? The psalmist says that you'll fall into your own nets. 
Oh, but pastor, pastor, I, I, I never spread nets for anybody. Mm-hmm. We all do. I fell into my own net on Tuesday. This is, this is where we fall into our own traps because we don't see that we're laying them. We don't think we are. We all have such noble ideas about our own agendas, our own visions, our own, ah, I'm, I'm, if you'd ever asked me over the last 22 years that I've been at Michiana Covenant, have I ever sort of laid traps for anyone? Oh, heavens no. Hmm. Have I? I never saw myself doing it. I always thought, I'm just trying to, this is the best thing for the kingdom of God. Is it now? We fall into our own traps so easily. That's why my eyes are ever on the Lord. Because <laughs> if I'm watching any place else, I'm going to miss at least the traps that I set. And I'm not that smart. I'm not going to catch all the traps that others lay for me either. So the promise is not that you will never get tangled in the net. The promise is that he will pluck my feet out of the net. And so we return to the Lord in prayer in verses 16 to 21. In the opening prayer, the psalmist lifted up his soul to the Lord. I want to be one who ascends the hill of the Lord. Lead me in your paths. Then in his creed, he declared that God instructs sinners, teaches the humble, and gives friendship to those who fear him. And so the psalmist does precisely what he said a humble man should do. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Things are not the way they should be. I am not the way I should be. I'm lonely. Yes, I, I know that you've said that your friendship is with those who fear you. So, Lord, I'm asking you to demonstrate your friendship. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Bring me out of my distress. Verses 18 and 19 challenge us to be honest with God about our sin and our situation. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes. The world, the flesh, and the devil would tear you down. And there's lots of lies that you'll tell yourself. In fact, it was about four o'clock this morning that I realized what I was going to do this morning for preaching. <laughs> As I was hearing all the lies that were being thrown at me and Thanks be to God, the, the lies were getting crazier and crazier and crazier. It was like, this is not possible. It is simply not possible. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. When you think about that in terms of, okay, we know that we know that we know the devil hates us. Do you know your own flesh hates you? Because your flesh is trying to destroy you. Because the flesh is turned against God and needs desperately to be put to death. Put to death that which is earthly in you, Paul says. 
But there are, sometimes my, my troubles have come upon me because of my sin, and so I pray God would forgive my sin. Sometimes my troubles have come upon me because of my foes. My enemies are trying to destroy me. And so the psalmist cries out in verse 20, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. We're back to our refuge theme, which started the whole first section of the Psalter. We started with David lifting up his soul to the Lord. Now he asks God to guard his soul. We started with the plea, let me not be put to shame. And we come back to that same plea. And think of how our Lord Jesus took this to himself as we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Verse 21 may seem very strange for a song that has highlighted sin, guilt, and shame. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. What? How can David say this after all the confession of guilt and shame and sin? For I wait for you. If I'm not asking God if I am asking God not to remember my former sins, if I'm asking God to pardon my guilt and forgive my sins, how can I claim that integrity and uprightness will preserve me? Well, if God has forgiven all my sin and pardoned all my guilt, then what does God have against me? Why do we have confidence before God? Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God has forgiven you, then all you have left is integrity and uprightness. If our sin is dealt with, if then this is why the timing on the question on sanctification comes in really handy. If he has renewed us in the whole man after the image of God, then we are more and more to die to sin and live to God. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, or in the language of Psalm 25, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let us pray. O Lord our God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us and be gracious to us and sustain us by your grace, by the, the grace of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Open our eyes that we might see your ways, your truth, that we might live in Jesus' name. Amen.